Clinical Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology, and with me today is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. There is no life I know to compare with pure imagination. Living there, you'll be free if you truly wish to be. If you want to view paradise, simply look around and view it. Anything you want to, do it. Change the world, there's nothing to it. While this song is written for the evocative scene in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, it's not a stretch to say that it is no less true for us than for the children in that magical world. After all, the song, the scene, and the whole movie were an act of imagination to begin with. I'm glad you brought Gene Wilder to my mind just then. <laughs> it's a great scene. I, I love that song. I, now it's going to be stuck in my head the rest of the day. It's so well written. And it's funny because he said uh, when he went to uh, sing it that he was worried because it wasn't a singing song. And it does. It has a very odd cadence. It's still really catchy, though. It <laughs> it's, is. It's it is. interesting. Um, I had another quote, too, that I thought about using, and it was it was Einstein, where he said, um, imagination is more important than knowledge, for knowledge is limited, whereas imagination embraces the entire world, simulating progress and giving birth to evolution, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, Einstein typically thought of as one of the, you know, you know, this looming figure in scientific thought, um, but really was an imaginative person and his theories of special and general relativity he regularly used um imaginative illustrations to demonstrate to lay people how the mathematics was working um you know i i remember you know people are more familiar with general relativity than special relativity with special relativity he talked about you know somebody on a train right if you're standing still and a train zips past you at 60 miles an hour and somebody on that train drops a tray of drinks, right? And spills them. Well, if you're on the train, you're going to see this person spill the tray of drinks and it's going to be a mess and they're going to be embarrassed and they're going to clean it up and do all this stuff. If you're the person that's just standing there, all you see is for a split second, that tray drop a quarter of an inch and then it's gone. It's out of view, right? And that's the way that time works based off of how people are traveling, how fast somebody's traveling, right? It's a great illustration. Yes. And, um, you know, we've this is a topic we've been talking about over the past several weeks, and it sort of it kind of leads naturally into imagination is that um, so these people at the edge of science, you know, the cutting edge of science, who are, um, you know, we really think of as being very driven by data and, you know, hard facts and stuff, are some of the people who by necessity have to be the most imaginative people out there because they have to interpret this data. And take this abstract, um, you know, commodity and turn it into something that has some sort of tangible consequences or impact on um, people. They have to shape it, right? So, what is imagination? Well, philosophically, there's so much written about it. Um, the Stanford Encyclopedia, again, free encyclopedia, Stanford Encyclopedia philosophy online it's just one of the glorious things about the internet it's it posits all kinds of taxonomies and represents all kinds of views uh, that goes uh, very very cavernously deep into trying to define this thing but i think one of the most interesting articles that i've encountered and was mentioned in in the stanford is uh, a piece where a brilliant analyst, <clears throat> philosopher, 
thinker ultimately comes to the decision that he can't define imagination. <laughs> and, and there's something very Socratic about that. Um, but if we think about being able to posit to, to see, to shape possibilities other than what exist, that's imagination. If you, um, if you are looking at anything other than the actual or taking what's actual, but moving it around. Hmm. But my brother who works for the, uh, for he's, uh, works on highways and he has this model that he picked up from somebody else. He read it somewhere, but he, he often says this. My job is essentially this. I pick things up, I put things down. And one of my adult children, who's very much involved in uh, puppetry and theater, at one point heard that and laughed and said, well, yeah, <laughs> putting the stage together, taking it out, putting pieces together, making it public. We pick things up, we put them down. I think that's <laughs> how we put them down is imagination. Right, yeah. When we pick them up is imagination. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So there's probably some listeners that are groaning already like, man, we're used to you guys not having answers, but like not even being <laughs> able to define it in the first place. This is going to be a rough episode. Um, I don't think it'll be that bad. Um, no. But yeah, there is there's definitely not a not a consensus. And if anything, there's like several um, sort of different diverging facets of what imagination is right um you know some of them i think that they can be kind of divided into voluntary and involuntary imagination which sounds sort of strange but involuntary is like REM sleep right mm -hmm. so your mind is conjuring all these sights and sounds and maybe smells or other things that um, aren't really happening creating a essentially a virtual world for you um and then there's um, the thing that I found interesting is other things identified as involuntary imagination, um, besides dreaming or, you know, hallucinations. Okay. Um, daydreaming, mm -hmm. right? Because mm -hmm. we think of daydreaming as almost like we have some control over it or something. Um, but it's considered an involuntary form of imagination. And one study that I read said that, um, people spend up to 47% of their waking lives daydreaming, daydreaming right mm -hmm. yeah. and then you think man that sounds really really high but then <laughs> think about just the mundane moments in your life right pretty much if i think about mine right if i'm not actively engaged in a task right if i'm not reading a school book or i'm not you know doing something like that my mind is just making stuff up right? <laughs> and i don't really have any control over it right and it can no. be anything sometimes it might be um, what they call past focused mm -hmm. um, daydreaming, which is where I'm, you know, I might be lifting weights at home and thinking, man, this, this thing at, at work happened during the day. Like how would I have done it different? And it's mm -hmm. not in those very specific wording, you know, it's just an involuntary simulation of how that past of event could have gone. scenes, right. Alternate scenes. Yeah. And this is what a director of, of a, well, I suppose the director of any particular piece of art, cinema, the theater, you 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 go through your mind and you think, what are these characters saying? You listen to the characters. You're trying to figure out why the characters, what do they tell us? What do they give us? And then in what circumstances would they be delivering this? And that, what if, what if, what if? Hmm. 
A what ifing is is imagination. Pretending is imagination. Uh, but there's so many different levels of that. So that, and if you have a, a little one in your life, you know this, or if you remember being being so uh, where you can be playing. I, as a as a grandfather, I can attest to this. And the the little one says, "Pretend." Okay, we're going to that that this is going to be an animal hospital, all right. And so you're putting these magnetiles together, and then the animal hospital becomes an animal hotel. But how that works is all the animals fly out of the cup and go down this chute, mm-hmm. which is the building, and land, and they're happy. <laughs> so the laws of physics, <laughs> right? Or you or it, uh, in the Stanford article, there's a, a, a nice one about uh, tea parties. And you're pouring this imaginary tea. And, oh, that tea tastes so good. Mm. But you put the cup down and you spill. Oh, I spilled it. And the little one says, no, you didn't. This is called, uh, I think, uh, quarantining, hmm. where where there is a, a boundary limit that shifts constantly in the imaginative give and take in storytelling. Yeah. Yeah, and it's really interesting. Um you know, thinking about, you know, where one of the things we'll talk about as we get farther into the episode is, you know, implications of imagination. And really it is arts, right? We think about that, you know, writing a novel or, or a, a play or a song or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the success of that hinges on two sort of um, diametrically opposed things, right? You ha- you have the toddler aspect, right? Where um, essentially their brain is just working with no filter, right? And you get very imaginative, very creative things, but also um, things like you said that that just don't make sense. Kind of like dreaming, right? You're just like, oh, well, this this, <laughs> this is just kind of random and weird, right? Um, but then on the other hand, the more you try to refine that and make it more realistic, the more it just starts to become real life, and nobody wants that either. Right? No, no, not so at you're, all. You're you're balancing this this sort of thing where you're saying, okay, well, I need to let this creative, imaginative, you know, just spontaneous inspiration, which is something that's considered an involuntary imagination. I need to let that work. But at the same time, I need to let it work in such a way that it has, people are able to suspend disbelief in some regard, right? Right. And it's a very difficult thing to do. Not many people are able to do it um, very well, very consistently. Um, it's it's um, it's a it's a seeding of and an operating with a kind of of power of a very primal kind of power that that if you're able to let that go uh, again with the with the the young one uh, three year old let's say who has arranged a, a, a lot of stuffies, the, the, the ant stuffed animals around, but they're all doing something and they're all, are they, but then you get into a guessing game. Wait, this happened to me this week. Well, they're all doing their own thing. They're all out around having various meals. Uh, and then there's the gaming that goes on. So, um, she'll say to me, so is, is, uh, Barker, one of the dogs, Barker done with dinner? And I said, yeah, Barker's done with dinner. Nope. No, nope. Barker still has to eat more. Oh. And so I think, okay, is, is cat, uh, done with dinner? 
No, I think cat has to eat longer. No, cat's all done. Got to leave the table. And you think, okay. Now, you could kick back and say, none of them are eating anything. We're done with this. And, you know, some adults get to that place where they're tired. <laughs> you say, nope. Or you can let go entirely and say, okay, I guess I'm just, I'm, I'm not seeing what you're seeing. And that's kind of funny. And let, let the imagination of the other guide you. Yeah. That oh, it very... turns out Barker was hiding his food under the table. Oh, that's why I thought he was done. Yeah, yeah. 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 I read an interesting study recently talking about um how they were, you know, this is something that unfortunately has been um put in financial terms, right? Businesses want to know how to make employees more creative thinkers. So of course they do. They enlist <laughs> academics to study it, right? Um and in this study, what they were there, so they're trying to figure out how to develop creative thinking. And um, what they found was kind of interesting, which is that, you know, practicing your, your certain type of thing, whether it's problem solving or music or writing or whatever, practice doesn't necessarily um, breed creativity. The one thing that they found that sort of crossed individuals was that people who just made up stories randomly and off the cuff tended to have the most creativity um which is funny because that's something my wife comments on a lot is you know i i'm always just making up stories so she never knows when i'm telling her the truth <laughs> one time she asked me hey what's beef wellington and i didn't had no idea so i said well the duke of wellington um was organizing an expedition to the arctic and he took his guys down there and um on the journey back, they were running out of food and morale was really low. So the Duke, you know, with nothing but beef and gravy and green peas, you know, uh, just kind of threw something together. And he told all the guys, this is what we eat like in the court. Like this is like a specialty. Like this is our, our best dinner. And it really raised the guy's spirits and they were able to make it out alive. And she's like, man, what an inspiring story. I'm like, I just made it up. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what beef Wellington is. You know? <laughs> and she gets really mad. <laughs> but it was an inspiring story. Yeah. yeah. Because for a moment there was, there's power. As we, as we well know in another, in, in more grim political circumstances, there's great power in this. Yeah. But, but this is what I've, I've gone through. I've known people who are getting their degrees or gotten their degrees in creativity. I've gone through workshops that were required of, of, of teachers to try to make them more creative. And that's about as a success successful, I think, as trying to use values clarification, which was a thing back in the late 70s, early 1980s, to teach people to be more ethical. <laughs> in my experience, what you just said, weaving a tale, reading a book, going out and having an experience, sitting and thinking, trying to get out of yourself, which is an imaginative thing in itself, is a whole lot more successful than trying to regiment and rudimentarily present in a methodical architectural format, so to speak, something that is without boundary. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I find it interesting from a musical standpoint, because, you know, that's, that's one thing that I, you know, do a lot of exploration in and seeing other people, um, as their careers progress, right. And, and how artists work and, you know, generally there's this sort of arc where at some point, um, it doesn't seem like they're putting out, um, 
as stuff as well as they used to, right? And um, you know, you see different variations. Some people think, well, if I develop more technical skill, you know, that'll increase my music. And you see their music get technically better, but the this it loses some of that magic in it. Mm-hmm. Or um, there's one musician I I never really liked his stuff to begin with, um, but he recently came out and said, um. I'm not going to write any more songs. I've said everything that I have to say, right? Which is kind of, that's sort of a sad thing. For me, the thought always was like, I'm not a good musician, right? But you don't have to be. If you only know three chords, right? You can combine them in a number of different ways, right? You can play them faster. You can switch up the order of them. You can make them staccato or legato, or you can, you can, there's always something different that you can do to make it, fresh right but i think that some people especially as they progress um and i think this is true of anything you know just being an adult right (laughs) going from being a kid to being an adult and having these myelinated pathways that say this is the way things should be um i think that it it we when it comes to using our imaginations or being creative we sort of psych ourselves out into thinking oh well I've already done so many things. I must have exhausted all of my options. Yeah. No, you, you can't, yeah, you, you can't, can. but you just have to be able to take that step of, of saying, <laughs> letting the child out a little bit, right? Well, what's something that's just sort of crazy right, right. now? What does that mean by letting the child out? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that it's, you know, it's uh, opening yourself up to the involuntary imagination rather than actively, you know, trying to, simulate scenarios Mm -hmm. you're just saying what comes comes right and be open to the possibility that some of it's going to be really weird some of it's not going to work some of it's just going to be straight bad like your dreams you know there's going to be some nightmares in there but if you dream long enough something really cool is going to happen and you might have to filter it down some you might have to change it with your voluntary imagination to be something different but there's always something that you can do that creates something that is imaginative and creative. And this is for me, you've just hit on something that runs on a streak down through other things that we've talked about, including most, more recent, most recently, this is the, the mythic level. This is the mythic river or ocean. This is, this is the force. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I, 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 I have, often felt that the force you know the, in the star wars material is people mis misread it as oh tapping into the great power of being able to push things around <laughs> and precisely wield the sword the, the great power of moving things <laughs> back to picking things up and putting them down the great power of the force is letting yourself go so that what you do is more profoundly in in tune with your unconscious and your and your imagination. And John Williams nails that musically. I, one of my favorite pieces of music is Yoda and the Force mm-hmm. from The Empire Strikes Back. And listening to that piece from a, a creative standpoint, every piece in the orchestra is doing something different from the other piece you know you have some of these really high sort of magical fast notes and you have some of these low just steady things there's all this stuff going on and it creates this really just mystical feeling right yes, it and does. it's just sort of the embodiment of that in an audio version 
But okay, so what have philosophers said about imagination or the mind's eye throughout time? Well, Plato, as you might expect, since we've talked about it before, so, uh, essentially says that imagination is is irrationality, and therefore he disses it <laughs> quite quite actively. I mean, if uh, I was trying to find one of the, I'd, I'd locked one of these in on my phone. Uh, here we go. For Plato, the imagination is primarily associated with the irrational, the alogistos, part of the soul in its dealing with the visible realm, shadows, reflections, phantasms. Phantasma is what comes out of Plato. It's another word that comes. Hmm. So, but we remember that Plato had this, this cave uh, metaphor. And, and so, of course, shadows are not for Plato what's real. And so to, to be locked with shadows is not to face the bright light of reality beyond the cave. But David Hume thought it was essential. Hmm. You know, and, 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 and so uh, imagination is responsible for all of our thinking, according to Hume's way of approaching it. And, and so it includes reason. And, th and, and thus the ability to carry out a demonstrative um, creative acts and, and probabilities. How many different ways might this go? And I think that that's, we all are, are familiar with that. Yeah. Yeah. I think the neuroscience would back him up on that because, you know, if you look at that toddler, right? And you think, well, what about what they're doing is rational, right? Right. Well, it really is. It's it's sort of being a little scientist, right? They're just they're just essentially throwing stuff at the wall and see what's going to stick, and that is informing their entire pathway of their learning, essentially, mm -hmm. right? And like we were talking about at the beginning of the episode, we do so much daydreaming just on a regular basis. Um, if you think about what rational thought is or what your process is when you're making a rational decision, it's a very good chance that you are using your imagination to simulate different scenarios and trying to pick which one of those scenarios is going to result in the best outcome. Mm -hmm. It's a definition of a rational, you know, rationality, but it's also the definition of imagination. You know, they kind of coincide. <laughs> if you think about just any individual driving down the road, how many of us have music on? Sometimes mm. we're driving. There's rolling music boxes, this, this half ton or ton or whatever it is of, of material going at, at, at a speed that could kill people and, 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 and. And this is, you listen to the sounds going on in some cars. You think, I wonder what my car sounds like. I hear this. This is back to the Einsteinian thing. Car goes rolling past your house at speed. Boom. <laughs> Wow, that guy's eardrums might be getting blasted up. And thinking, oh dear. <laughs> right. But when I'm driving down the road, listening to Aerosmith or whatever, well, that's something completely different. But we're in different places. Oh, our eyes are on the road. But at the same moment, we may be reliving a dance that we did a long time ago with somebody ages, years ago when we hear a certain part of a song. We're daydreaming. We're driving equipment. <laughs> And we can't help ourselves for the most part because it's a human thing. Yeah. How many people do you know say like, oh, I don't really remember the drive home from work. You know, and that sounds, that's pretty scary. But at the same time, you're so habituated to doing this thing that your mind has 
taken over some autonomous tasks and that opened up processing powers now used to imagine other things. We right? need to do a disclaimer here. We are not saying that you ought to just go into your car, <laughs> crank up the music. <laughs> no, no, no. But but it's funny that it happens automatically with with people. Yes, it is. So we've talked about some of the distinct um, distinctions between types of imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have dreaming hallucination, insight, daydreaming. Those are kind of the involuntary things that just pop up as within our lived experience. Mm -hmm. We also have voluntary um, imagination, which stems from lateral prefrontal cortex activity, right? So the interesting thing about that is um, other animals don't have that part of the brain other than primates, right? And that's part of your brain that's responsible for things like um, goal orientation or um, delayed gratification, some of these other things. Um, so what purpose does imagination serve given these two? Uh, survival? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there might be a bear out in that, that, that one. I thought I saw shadows moving. I don't know that I should go over there uh, if I hear a bear and a bear cub, I'm not sure where both of them are. Um, I'm imagining horrible things happening to myself. Well, that's okay. Maybe you're scaring yourself away from doing something you shouldn't do. I mean, that's one goofy example, but that's right. Yeah, no, it's a good one. When uh, on my notes, what I put next to what are the purposes of imagination? What purposes do imagination serve? I said all of them! Exclamation point. <laughs> Well, so the reason true. I asked that question is it's mostly isn't a it? setup, right? Yeah, isn't it? So the setup is, um, you know, we talked about these types of imagination. Do animals have imagination, right? What do you think? Well, here's what I think, right? I think that they must because like you just said, imagination seems essential for survival. And so – Every, everybody who has pets has seen this, right? You see your pets sleeping and you see them start kicking his legs. Yeah. So that's REM sleep, which developed very, very early in the animal tree. So there's definitely some involuntary imagination. Voluntary imagination is where it gets tricky, right? Because like I just said, the only animals that have this um, lateral prefrontal cortex are primates. But if you look at other parts of the animal kingdom, you see some interesting things and you can take these interesting things and go farther and farther down the animal tree. And that's where the philosophical debate is going to really rise Mm -hmm. up. Right. Mm -hmm. I think one of the ones in this study is pretty old now. It's got to be a decade. At least they found that, you know, a dragonfly um, was able to simulate its future position in space in order to capture prey. Well, that seems Kind of like it might be voluntary, right? Or ants, right? Ants are capable of linking themselves together to create a floating raft, right? So they they know exactly how to link up in order to create a raft that will float on water or exactly how to link up to create a ladder to reach a tree or something. It seems like, okay, sure, you could say it's involuntary. Well, it's instinctual. That's what they do to survive, right? But to me, it almost seems like there's an element there that, you know, not every ladder is going to be the same. Not every raft is going to be the same or you'd have failures, right? But 
even these very simple creatures are able to come up to a novel situation and come up with a solution that allows them to continue on. So to me, philosophically, that's interesting. Is, it is. I do agree. these animals have a voluntary ability to imagine or simulate different scenarios? And why do we... This this is a question that I keep haunting us with, you do too, that we, we've gone to before, but I think it's necessary to keep asking it. It's interesting for the idea itself of, of, of how might this operate? Why would this be there? But there are those who then, they, they do the anthropomorphic route and say, well, of course it makes us superior because we can A, B, C, whatever, right? No, it, 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 I don't think that it makes us superior because I don't need us to be superior to anything else. There are some days I don't feel superior to a, a horse that I see running in a field. If I imagine myself riding the horse, which is really laughable, then, <laughs> then suddenly I've gone off on that track. Where am I riding to? Oh, I'm riding under two moons over it. Now, wait a minute. <laughs> Get back to driving. <laughs> right. Um, but does it... Does, is there a utility? Well, we ask that because of evolutionary things, don't we? If there, if, if, if there weren't a use, would it still be there? Quite possibly, because I don't think evolution, anybody's ever going to make the argument that it's a nice, efficient system. Uh, I don't know that every single part of us has a use. Uh, so I, I, animals may. Hmm. Is it fun to think that animals may? Yeah. And, you know, I think that, you know, obviously, you know, we all have appendixes or these other things that aren't are no longer necessary. Um, And as a matter of fact, if you look at imagination, you could make the argument that there are aspects of human imagination that are detrimental to survival. Right. (laughs) Like, um, you know, for instance, the our imagination is so developed that we can imagine our own deaths. That mm-hmm. doesn't seem to be something that animals or many animals have the capability of doing. And from a utility standpoint, I don't know that it's necessarily beneficial. You know, can it inspire some people to do um, some amazing things before they reach that point? Maybe. But at the same time, for regular everyday people, knowing, you know, having this knowledge that you're going to die, um, it can cause some people great psychological harm in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, the utility standpoint or the evolutionary standpoint of it is um, is is a tough sort of thing to discuss. Um, do you think there's an inextricable link? I think this is sort of plays off this other question. Is there an inextricable link between imagination and creativity? I I do. I, because even if one is doodling, even if you're unconscious and you're and you're doodling something, well, at some point you realize your hand is doing something, and and it may be just just scribbles. But is there any such thing as just scribbles? Maybe those scribbles have some kind of unconscious. Uh, shaped intent that that you wanted them to have. I think that imagination is inextricably linked to creativity. I think that, but we, but what I 
also think is that we sometimes fetishize the idea of creativity that uh, backwashes into sort of fetishizing fetishizing imag- imagination, and so that ultimately you you have people who say, "Well, I don't have any imagination. Or I I couldn't make X, Y, or Z." Hmm. Um, or you have the the super uh, version on the other side, super o- overbearing, where people will walk through a craft festival. I've seen this so, so, so many times. And they'll look at the wares that people have out who go to an art gallery with the prices on a painting or something. That's $500 for a painting? That's outrageous. Well, and then you, if you know them, you can say, um, how many hours do you suppose it took to the layering of those oils? The thought that and the feeling that were invested in that, the uh, materials that were bought for that and 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 he said oh that really not that much money for that piece of work but then you're reducing it to economic terms mm-hmm. but i think it needs to i don't i think we all are we all have it yeah the economics of it is interesting i as a matter of fact i saw a meme i think it was just yesterday that said um you know we have to stop devaluing the arts when you know how many of us are listening to music for how much of the day? How many of us are watching TV for how much of the day? How many of us entertainment, you know, in quotes, entertainment is, you know, a central part of all of our lives. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, you know, people tend to brush it aside as something that's not necessary. Well, I think that if it was not necessary, people wouldn't, wouldn't be doing so much of it. Right. (laughs) Which isn't to say that you can't do it to excess or it can't be done in such a way that it serves very little purpose. I think that there is junk food entertainment. Um, but I think that, yeah, you know, the way that current, um, current pay structures for musicians or for artists or any of these other people, um, they're massively undervalued for these, this sort of central role they play in keeping us human. Right? Yes. Yes. Um, so economically, yeah, that's, it's probably a, a whole nother topic. Um, but an inextricable link between creativity and imagination. I think that this is, again, this is where the philosophy happens, right? Yeah. So this is where we. So you can challenge inextricably. Yeah, we, <laughs> we we attempt to earn our earn our keep as as uh, armchair philosophers. So the go to, right? I think for me is um, to examine the etymology of the two words and then to perform thought experiments, mm-hmm. which is generally what we do on mm-hmm. on the show. So. You know, I think if if there's an inextricable link, I think that the the naturally occurring next question is be would be what is the distinction between imagination and creativity? That's a really interesting question. So I'm going to approach it uh, through a very base level at first and say your creativity is tangible only when something is made that can be phenomenologically experienced. Hmm. Um, Imagination at base is a capacity that may play out, does play out in imagining, but imagining sort of could be like the tree in the forest 
that falls and nobody else is around. Yeah. Okay. I think that's a good start. So me being a manufacturing person, right? I'm looking at it. Imagination is the raw materials of creativity, right? So you need the, you need the imagination in order to, to make the creative, um, the creation, right? The creation and creativity is the process you use to get there. So the creation is your end product. Your creativity is your manufacturing process. Your imagination is your raw materials. So it would then sort of follow to me that you can't have creativity without imagination, but it might be possible for imagination to exist without there being creativity. You think? Yes, I, I do. I, I, I like where you, I like how you set that. So up. then, what I'm wondering is, um, what, how we define creativity, right? Because. <laughs> Like you said, we we need to have some sort of phenomenological um, outcome, right? But is it potential or is it realized? Yes, Can yes, create, yes. Okay, so creativity is potential. Uh, creating is actualized. All right. Imagination is potential. Imagining is active, although it might be done entirely within and not evidenced without uh, from outside oneself. Um, so I guess there's a difference there, but I still think we have the, the we have the potential, we have the actual. All right. So uh, thought experiment, which is it's real. It's not. So I guess it's really just um, a, a case study, right? Um, I had a song idea. I write the whole song in my head, which is something I've done before, all the individual parts. Um, and I hear it in my head. There's the song, right? Then I sit down and I work out actually what chords are being played and I record it and I, I go through it and all this different things. So if I didn't get to that recording part, right? If I wrote the whole song, there it is, boom, in my head. Um, that's, is that, that's not a work of creativity. It is. is See, it? Yeah, it is. So now you're making this more difficult. Good for you. <laughs> right. Of course it is. Because you have made something within you that didn't exist before. You have, and you no doubt have endorphins that can, you know that it feels different when you say, oh, hey, mine, <laughs> a new song. Nobody's heard it. No, okay. So it's, it's potential in the sense that it has not been experienced by anyone else, but it's actual, I would argue in the sense that it has wrought a change within you. There's been an expenditure of time. There's been a realization of something. There's been a, an epiphanic thing happening. Yeah. This is wildly important because <laughs> Well, again, um, it's sort of the ship of Theseus, right? Because this is something that is happening all the time in every single one of us. Yeah. And, you know, it might be actually the greatest work of creativity that's happening around the world at any given moment is all of us are, you know, taking in concrete um, sorts of information through our senses and through the way that we're processing them in our brain. But then we're spending huge amounts of time um, using that information and simulating and imagining other scenarios. And those simulations and imaginations don't just exist in isolation or pop up and, and disappear like a bubble. 
no, we think about those things, and in some part of our our memories and our our thinking processes, they become real to us in some regard. Yes, and so they have the power to shape how our realities essentially. Right, they do. And this is where it gets, I think, really dicey mm-hmm. because <clears throat> I've encountered uh, genuinely motivated people in the, the sense of how they see themselves who will say, I'm a writer. But they don't write anything because they say they don't have time to write anything or they don't write anything because they don't want to have to prove themselves or whatever. So, so are they a writer? Not in tangible terms but in their inner life perhaps i can't know that this is one of those things that epistemologically there's no (laughs) way to measure so when one one might hasten when one hears someone say well i'm a blank we talked about categories before the show right Mm. all right if you identify yourself as something in a category of something all right uh, why are you doing that? Is that to establish to other people what you think of yourself? Uh, if you establish what you think of yourself, but you offer no proof to people, now we're getting into what uh, a capitalistic exchange or why should I have to prove myself to you? Uh, can I be a writer and not have I ever put a pen to paper, fingers on keyboard? Uh, does that make me just as much a writer as William Faulkner? No. <laughs> right. Or Tony Morrison? No. Uh, <laughs> Does that mean uh, you are not a writer? Well, it means you're not a tangible writer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We we were talking about this before the show. Um, I think in the context of music, right? You're saying that um, you know, people. I don't. I really identify myself as a musician. Um, and, and if people want to talk to me about music, lots of times I'd rather talk with them about how they experience music because even if somebody isn't a musician, they don't play instruments or whatnot. They do interact with music, right? And to me, you know, philosophically, that's the interesting part is how people interact with music, right? So mm-hmm. it's not interesting to me to have somebody ask, well, what is, what was the meaning behind this song? Or how did you come up with this chord progression or that sort of, no, none of that. That's not interesting to me, right? What's interesting to me is, how do you experience music? Now, is that other person a musician, right? Let's say they've never picked up a musical instrument. And I, I, I think that we all know people like this, right? Maybe somebody who's never picked up a musical instrument, but they're an avid consumer of music, mm-hmm. you know, huge vinyl collection and, mm-hmm. and all this stuff. And they've really analyzed music. Are they a musician? Um, it's definitely troublesome to say yes, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it doesn't seem completely accurate to say no. No, it doesn't. And that's why we have other terms of, that one could apply if we were needing the terms. Are they a music appreciator? Well, yes, because music appreciation can be taught in the sense of the mechanics of, of understanding as you describe what what happens in a particular piece, are they a musician? Not as we understand the term in um, on the ground everyday use, mm. uh, because the musician implies someone who makes music, right? 
writer implies someone who makes written words. <laughs> yeah. And so that's where, you know, that the creativity, right? The, I, I think that you have to have a creation in order to have that designation as a musician. Yeah. It's kind you, of an earned thing. I hate the, you can yeah, have musical creativity thing. without playing an instrument, mm -hmm. but in order to have a musical creation, that's what qualifies you as a musician, I right. think. Right. You know, what have you produced? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it is, <laughs> it is unfortunately capitalist. Or what have you, what have you made? What, and and if someone says none of your business, I've got a room upstairs and I have all of my artwork in. I'm not going to show it to you because I don't want to. <laughs> yeah. Well, oddly, this to me puts us almost in this very strange variant of of uh, a physics experiment. You know the one mm -hmm. I'm alluding to. Yeah. Schrodinger comes back. Well, if I have a room that no one has seen but myself. And I say that in that room, there's art. And I'm really out on a limb with this one. So, so, and, and I'm not going to let anybody, if somebody opens the door to that room and they don't see anything, then there isn't art. If somebody doesn't open the door to that room, they can imagine all kinds of possibilities for what might be in there. Yeah, and I don't think you're as far on a limb as you think because, like I said, we all know this person, right, um, who perhaps is an audiophile or an art connoisseur, right, mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, and they have consumed so much of uh, a medium that they have a deep knowledge of it and an understanding, but they've never done the thing themselves. So if that person were to... It was in the scenario, right? And they said, well, I, yes, I am a, a very accomplished musician, but I haven't released any recordings. And they could talk knowledgeably about music. We might all be fooled, right? And you would never know until you open the door if the cat was alive or dead, if the room was full of, if the room was full of instruments or if it was empty, right? You, would, you wouldn't know. Really. You, talked, you talking to that wonderful wife in your life. That other soul and weaving tales of beef Wellington is not so very different. I could, I could make up. I used to have a friend. Uh, I still have the friend, but we used to engage in a game because we're both academics and we would make up titles for presentations at modern language association conferences, which is uh, a, a legitimate organization, but oftentimes people sort of strutting right. <laughs> and we would make up these titles and i think gee that actually sounds like an interesting paper here's what i think the paper said and <laughs> well writers do this all the uh, time I, there are endless examples but i'm going to go to dune for instance where frank herbert the, the whole structure of the novel novel the chapters are are uh, prefaced epigraphically with selections from books in the universe of Dune, but that never have existed hmm. in our own. This gets really complicated. Yeah. Do those books exist? Well, in the universe of Dune, they do. And Dune is in our universe as an artifact. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, and this happens all the time. I remember one of my favorite video games of all time was um, The Elder Scrolls Morrowind. And in that game, there's hundreds and hundreds of books. And there's bookstores. And you can just go in and just read books about the lore of the 
imagined con- continent or the gods of the imagined continent and all these things. And reading the interview with the guy who was in charge of writing all of these books for the video game, you know, and yeah, it creates this strange meta thing, right? Um, which raises the question, is there always a fantastical element to imagination? Is it is it necessary for there to be there? Fantastical or... All right, how do you mean fantastical or fantasy? What, yeah, what? I guess this sort of comes back to that to the animals in a, in a way, right? So mm. those ants creating a bridge, right? Is that just sort of, you know, is there a fantastical element there? Or if I'm thinking about, um, you know, a way of solving a problem at, at work, right? Maybe there's, maybe there's no elements of it that are impossible or out in left field. Maybe it's just very strictly, um, I'm thinking about taking this action. Here are the steps I have to take. You know, maybe like a mental to-do list, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Here's what I have to do in the next half an hour to get this thing done. Um, or is, is there a fantastical element in these things? I is think, it necessary? I, I think if you mean a narrative fantastical element, if you need, if you, if you're thinking, well, I fantasized where this might be, which or I've projected it, then. Yes, if we're talking more strictly fantasy as in sword and sorcery and heroes and gods and so on, not when you're manufacturing something. It doesn't make it any less. It's a really interesting question because it, it calls into a strict thought the very nature of belief. Hmm. And of truth and other things that we've talked about or will talk about. Let me give you an example. So nobody can see it on the radio, but you've made this or radio uh-huh. <laughs> on the podcast. But but he's made this remarkable helmet, a three D printed helmet of uh, emulating a, a, a Star Wars character, and yet you've made it your own. So it has dents and and that are from the thing that your character that you're imagining fantastically has experienced that has to my knowledge hasn't really left this house that thing is sitting there so it hasn't been dented those are imaginary dents and yet they're they're printed and painted into this helmet and then you did this clip that you put on facebook and it was marvelous because something happened that whether you intended or not, and I, you, know, you could question my state of being, I suppose. I watched that. I heard the theme for the Mandalorian when you put the helmet down. It was just a few seconds. There you are looking very heroic and putting the helmet down. I'm hearing the music. The music did not exist in that clip, but it existed in my experience of it. So was that fantastical? Yes. Did it have to be there for me to experience the helmet? No, but my brain decided that it did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess I guess by definition all imagination needs a fantastical element because because um, it doesn't exist other. Yeah, and I think it's because we we have no knowledge of the end of it. If that makes sense. So if we're doing future imagining, right, even if it's something simple, like a a mental to-do list over half an hour, right, there's nothing to say I'm not going to walk out of my office and a press is going to fall on me and I'm dead, right? Then that half an hour that I had imagined in front of me 
is fantastical because it never came to pass, right? Mm-hmm. And past imagination is no different, right? If I'm trying to imagine, well, how would this scenario have turned out differently? Well, it didn't. So as a result, it didn't exist. So it's a fantasy, right? Mm. So I think that I think that you there is no matter how mundane or realistic or you know rational an imagination is, there's a fantastical element to it because the nature of imagination is simulating something outside of what we have knowledge of happening. And that's even an interesting phrase that I didn't intend to say, but But outside of our knowledge of what we know is happening, (laughs) I mean, that opens up the possibility of a multiverse, right? Maybe some of these things, maybe I am doing some of these things in a different universe, but I have no knowledge of it, right? Or just a glimpse. Or, yeah. Or, yeah. I mean, even, I think this even goes to, for me, and I think people would disagree with this and, and well, they should. But for me, just momentarily here thinking about it, this is really bringing up uh, pattern making. If we look at the clouds and we say, what do you see? Now, fair, fair acknowledgement here. I was watching a show that uh, one of my adult children put me onto called, uh, uh, it's a pirate show. <laughs> it's on HBO. Uh, and uh, this flag means death, I think is the name of this show. It's a satire. It's, I don't know what it's, a, right? But there's all kinds of imagining going on in this. And, and one, the Blackbeard, the pirate, is looking at the sky and talking to his first officer and saying, what do you see up there? Those clouds, they're Frankfurters or something like that. And the guy is just put off next to him. Uh, they're clouds and we have much more important things to think about. This is a, No, but what do you see? You're always doing this. What do you, you know? And, and I, I started chuckling because that's so, in a nutshell, uh, with my granddaughter, look up at the sky. What do you see? Clouds? Yes. <laughs> well, was that the answer? I think, but okay. And what else? Oh, blue sky. Okay. Do you see anything in the clouds? I mean, what am I asking? I'm leading, right? I'm leading, and and then she's playing. Ah, oh, I see a cat. Well, of course she does because she loves cats. It's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's again, that's that the things that she's been creative about in her mind yeah. are informing her reality about what she's so she's fantastically overlaying that not reshaping in in a physical sense the clouds are still the clouds but we 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 train ourselves we practice ourselves into when we open to our imagination into putting on overlays it's like putting on different costumes hmm. Ah, there's a cloud, a nude cloud. Let's put a costume on it and see what it is. Oh, there's a cat, or it's a castle, or whatever it is. So I think there's a fantastical element of that. We, we see something along the road. We're sure it's a person crossing. Nope. It's a mailbox. Well, for a moment, there was a, 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 a not just a rational, that's a human shape. We've added something to it. Yeah, yeah. Your brain has added human features to it to make it human. And there's fascinating videos you can see online of of different tech companies doing this where um they'll take a video and then they'll um inform the AI, hey, find find dogs in this video, right? And depending on how high up they turn the intensity, 
all of a sudden you'll see everything start turning into dogs, right? <laughs> and so sometimes you're like, well, I don't know where it came up with a dog out of this part of the video. But if they dial it back a little bit, all of a sudden you can see, oh, wait a minute. You know what? That window with that shadow and given the texture of the wall, yeah, that does look like a, you know, a basset hound, right? Or whatever mm-hmm. the case is. Mm-hmm. So, you know, technology, AI hasn't, te- you know, mastered this concept of it. I think that's still part of what separates humans from um thinking computers is is that we have this ability to to do these sorts of things but there are ways that it can it can sort of simulate it hmm. which kind of leads into our last question can imagination be affected by culture and technology hmm. i'm going to say i think so what do you think i uh, yeah i think definitely for just one example if one enjoys a certain storyline, a set of characters, a novel, then one begins to find the patterns. Now we're back to the monomyth <laughs> in, in stories, right? There's a pattern. It's not the only pattern. And and it's certainly canted toward, as we said last week, a certain individuals. But you... Yeah, yes. Yeah, I think so. The reason that this one stuck out to me, and I hate to end the episode on a dark note, so I'm sure we'll find (laughs) some other ways to spin it, but I went to my seven year old nephew's baseball game, right? Hmm. And I'm watching these little kids and and how they're playing, and, and, you know, not only, you know, how they're interacting with each other and, and all these different things. And I, I just found myself with this overwhelming feeling, right? Like I remember being in this exact circumstance and I don't believe that I remember, you know, remembering it fantastically. Surely there must be, as we've talked about in this episode, even the, even the act of remembering something is adding a fantastic Mm -hmm. element, right? Mm -hmm. But I remember, you know, the age and the experience of playing and the other kids playing in this stuff. And what, what I found myself just this overwhelming feeling that these kids don't have an attention span. Right. And there's, there's some other things that are happening. And, you know, then my mind naturally wanders to some of the academic articles that I've read about the effects of technology exposure on developing brains and, and how it works and these sorts of things. So, you know, I think that, and I think that there, I don't think that it's all detrimental, right? I think that there's definitely no. things. I think you and I have talked about in another episode how, um, you know, back when we would watch movies or TV shows as a kid, the special effects were very primitive, right? But your your definition of primitive and my definition are very different. Are very different, and are very very different from the current. Yeah. Um, special yeah. Oh, effects. Yeah. And so I think the, the question we asked in that episode was, do the, the modern special effects, uh, are they detrimental to creativity? Because since kids don't have to um, imagine how this character being scary or being intimidating. And I think initially we're like, yeah, yeah, you know, it's doing all the work for them. But then I think we came to a different we came to a different conclusion by the time we we, we ended it. We did. Where um what we talked about is well no because these realistic creatures now it's providing you with this framework of it's creating new possibilities 
inside of your mind, sort of, right? Uh, you're, you're seeing these, you're seeing Godzilla, you know, 400 meters tall or whatever. And you're thinking, oh, wow, now I have a sense of scale and a sense of what his skin texture would be like and, and how he would move that I didn't have watching a guy in a rubber suit smash a, a micro village. But right? that doesn't mean that you still weren't enjoying. And that doesn't mean you couldn't look. I, I, I remember remember and of course i'm <laughs> reconstituting and inaccurately to some degree because that's what all memories are uh, riding back through the hills of lower cataraugus and uh, allegheny county foothills of the appalachians uh, uh, with my parents one night when i was a kid lying in the back seat and looking at all the hills the mounded ancient worn down hills and I swore that Godzilla was under those. I just knew because I'd watched some Godzilla movies that day. And I said, it's there. The clouds are up there dark and shit. The stars are twinkling. And I think those trees are moving and Godzilla's there. So I made a better Godzilla than the guy in the rubber suit. Right. Okay. So they they see incredible things now, kids. We we see them too in the things that we watch, let's face it. Uh, we And... But but I see children taking those things and making them their own again. Hmm. You know, the Godzilla doesn't look like Godzilla, so what? Um, I, so I don't think we should necessarily. Is it changing? Yes. Are our minds being reshaped by? We know this from the psychological, the neurocognitive stuff. Use of our tools changes us. But I had this conversation with somebody else this week briefly. But it, it, that. When, but it always has. Right. From the moment we shaped something out of iron or bronze or picked up a stone, it has shaped how we saw the world. So it's not like, well, suddenly we're all tainted. I mean, we've, we've been messing things up from the very beginning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the way it's been with any new introduction to technology, right? Writing is going to ruin people's minds. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Radio is going to ruin people's minds. TV is going to ruin people's minds. Yeah, so... I think what we find looking back on history is that the human mind is remarkably adaptable and um, technology is going to change the way that the mind and the imagination works. Um, but whether it's detrimental or not, um, yeah. it's hard to know within within your your limited sliver of time. You know, It's think- hard to know that, but it's also hard to know exactly what we mean by detrimental. So I'm taking mm-hmm. us back to the guys who'll never define anything ultimately because, right. <laughs> because we can moralistically say, well, things were better. The old guys slip into this. This is what I'm desperately trying not to do as I, as I age. Detrimental how? Uh, detrimental because kids aren't doing the same things that we're doing? Well, you know, if you if you listen to people talk about kids and play, and I know that there's some element to it, but uh, but still, you'd think that everybody in the United States was out eight hours a day doing nothing but wandering around in the woods and playing like, well, like we used to. We were always outside climbing the trees. And if, nah, you probably weren't. You probably had some moments when you did. You probably had a really good time when you did. But if there was radio or even the beginnings of television that was only on for a little bit of time during the day, you were probably watching that thing. I know because I've heard people of a certain age tell me that. So you weren't out all the time playing mm. and making things up for yourself. And you probably were out bullying or being bullied <laughs> by other people when you were trying to play and wanted to be out by yourself and, and, and. So it's, it's, I just hesitate to try to say it's all bad. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I think for sure. 
you know, like I said, watching this little um, team of seven-year-old T-ball players interact, you know, (laughs) I definitely saw um, differences in, in the relationships that were positive compared to when I was younger, you know? Um, So, yeah, I don't, I don't think that it's all, I don't think it's all bad. Um, But uh, technology within yeah, within the within the the context of of imagination, I think it's an interesting it's an interesting topic, and it would it would be one that I I hope they do some more um, academic research on in, in years it, coming. Happen, yeah. What about what about culture? Do you think culture and imagination? Right, everybody across the world has imagination, but do you think that the culture you come from informs the way that? how you imagine things or how you create oh, yes. things. Right? Oh, yes. Don't you? Th- I mean, th- 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 we, we like to say, <laughs> well, not we, there, there, are, there are certain groups that like to say, no, we're, we're, we got to stop this ideological training of our kids and uh, we got to get back to the way it was. Oh, that other ideological training, <laughs> right? So does, does culture affect us? Sure. And some of us grow up to push back. That's necessary for the health of culture, <laughs> uh, and and that's and that involves imagination. That involves what ifing, saying, "What if we keep following this same path?" You st- and and other people will say, "No, what if we do this? Going to go this way? No, it's going to go that way." But that's necessary. That's vital in order for the conversation to happen. Yeah, and I think it's a vital. Um, I think it's going to be a vital thing for the. The survival of the human species here. Well, yeah. Soon. Now, now we're under that um, topic, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and so outside of that, you know, being able to imagine what the future is going to look like, yeah, we we can look at, at climate aspects of it, but even in, in the academic aspects, right? For years now, the humanities have, has been stripped of yes. funding and things because it's seen as. Um, it's, un, you, you, not necessary, right? Yes, ephemeral. Just it's un, It has no use, according to far too many people, because as you said before, imagination is not is not privileged uh, by people. It's certainly not foregrounded by lots of people, and it uh, seems like a furthering away. Well, we should be working lots more. We should be just serious all the time. This is what's turned us into one of the most mentally. Uh, uh, mental health difficult nations on the planet. <laughs> yeah, this, this obsessiveness with narrowness is pretty right. Nice. And and you know it's it's done in the name of increased productivity, right? Having people be more productive for society, but it only takes a little bit of imagination and a little bit of academic research. <laughs> to find out that it's it's the opposite, right? What they've found is that um, when schools focus on or in businesses, when businesses focus on um, applied research as opposed to um, research and development, which is applied research is researching things that will solve problems. So, okay, I'm trying to create, you know, I have a product and I'm trying to refine it so that the issues with it are are minimized right Hmm. that's a necessary thing very important but if you throw all of your eggs into that basket and you're not researching and developing new technologies um then you're not going to have new creations that the future needs in order to survive and um 
and that's, like and that's very difficult, right? Because yeah. there's not a tangible return on a, on a research and development investment, right? No. You're throwing a lot of money into it, but you know, <laughs> the guy can't say, right. Well, yeah, sure. I'll have the, the next internet created within five years. If you provide me this much money, he can't do that. Right. No. But with no funding and no time allotted to do that, he certainly isn't going to create it. Right? You know what? You just sparked something in, 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 in this whole bean that I, I want to say right off of that before I lose it. And that is mentoring a child, whether it's your child or somebody you're associated with. So it's not saying everybody needs to be parents. No, they don't. Parenting and guiding along with parents all of it is children is research and development you the money and time and 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 what the the child is not going to say ah oh, i promise that if you keep me going for the next 18 years i'm going to save the world in 10 more years after that no we don't seem to mind that except some people do what well, what are you going to do with your life how is it going to be useful how, what's my return going to be? Are you going to take care of me in my old age? Blah, 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 blah. Mm. That's where it goes sour. That's it, the business model of spending too much on applied research and not research and development is, I think there's a parallel to how we are thinking about children in this society. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, it's it's really important, you know, if we talk about not devoting money or time to the humanities or not devoting money and time to letting people imagine what the future is going to be like, what the next steps of the human species are going to be. Um, sure, we might continue to get better and better TVs or better and better iPhones or better and better cars, right? But that's not going to matter if we can't solve the new problems that are facing us or if we can't create the new technologies that address the things that have been there all along that it hasn't occurred to us that we are capable of. Or we handling. can't even acknowledge that they're there. Because we have been so shuttered by our ideological training that we don't even oh. Right. And if it sounds crazy, right? I mean, you just got to think about George Washington seeing an iPhone, right? <laughs> Surely he would think that that was some sort of sorcery, you know? And it's not like that was that long ago. We're only talking 230, you know, yeah. 260 years, something yeah, like that. So, so, you know, the, trying to imagine what the future is going to be like um, – it really demonstrates the importance of imagination and how it interacts with creativity and how it interacts with some things that you don't think it does like business and economics and capitalism. So mm -hmm. I think it's a fascinating talk and I'm sure it's going to bleed over into <laughs> <laughs> even more, but until next time, keep on.